Hey everyone, John and Andrew here. Welcome to the podcast. On today's episode, pressing the pause button. You're shit at being gentle. And the biology of stress. This is Obstacle Course. Let's go. <laughs> oh man, this was so good. Yeah, and it's your, it's you that are shit at being gentle. Yeah, I said that to myself <laughs> on this episode. <laughs> Which you will understand when you hear that part of the podcast. It's, it's right at the end, but it's um, there's a lot of irony in the oh, statement. Oh, so ironic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, fantastic conversation with Dr. Nick Wignall, who was joining us from Albuquerque, New Mexico today. Our first Albuquerquean on the podcast. Yeah, and can you spell that? <laughs> no, I don't know if, it, <laughs> if it's ever been written. Well, and he was an English major, he just, was, just like you? He was an English major, as, yeah. as I am an English major. He got a couple of degrees after that. Yeah. I stopped. I you know, quit while you're ahead. Um, and then I, despite being an English major, made a, a literary... Uh, blunder. Blunder, yeah. It was literally inaccurate right off the get-go of the Yeah, but it was about T.S. Eliot, so I don't know if any of our listeners would have caught it. No. But they will now. Yeah, you'll hear it. And if you are a, a fan of 20th century literature, you might think, Andrew just made a complete error and, uh, and didn't even realize it. But then, as my mind wandered through yeah. the conversation not listened wandered yes. uh, i realized that i had misspoke <laughs> and, and to your credit you called yourself on your own misspokenness <laughs> yeah <laughs> i fact checked myself determined awesome. myself to be wrong and then corrected so nick nick was really timely because he's literally an expert in things that all of humanity does just most of the time yeah <laughs> right to, which is to, over over identifying with our thoughts basically yeah to our own detriment <laughs> <laughs> for sure yeah so i mean we covered off all the big ones today folks stress anxiety um talking down to ourselves talking self, bad self, to ourselves yeah. negative self-talk self was yeah. was a, a topic that i narrowed in on and as we discussed before we even started recording, we're probably just going to ask questions about things that we <laughs> struggle with ourselves. Yeah, for sure. Assuming that everyone else struggles with them as well. <laughs> yeah. But I think the assumption is right. And Nick has, I, I would say, a rare gift for being extremely like coherent and like pragmatic in, in how he says things. He makes the real difficult things sound like, man, I should have been doing this all along. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he, he puts words to the things that we stutter over and try to, <laughs> try exactly. to describe ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> hmm, okay. Thanks, Nick. That's how it's supposed to sound. Yeah. <laughs> Although uh, he did give us a compliment at the end. He did. He is going to be starting his own podcast. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if we should tell. Well, we've just told him. But <laughs> keep listening, but also listen to Nick's podcast. Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying not to say that as much. Uh, so one of the things that we talked about today was uh, morning routines. And yes. he is... Oh. That was, that, oh. That was perfectly timed. Yeah. <laughs> oh, inadvertent sound effect there. Added in by my laptop going to sleep. Um, yeah. So Which is so ironic because morning routine and your laptop's now going to sleep. Yeah. Wow. It, it's all mixed oh, up. That's, yeah. I love it. The, me the metaphor there. Anyways, morning routine. Morning routines. And Nick talked about um, how writing is often part of his morning routine. And, and there's a mindfulness practice in there. Um, but we know, and by we, I mean you and I, not everybody else, but you and I know that you have recently changed your morning routine and, and are now getting up even earlier on a regular basis. Do you, do you want to? 
I don't actually know what that entails. So can you uh, can you describe it to me? Yeah, so this is something that happens quite a bit, folks, is Andrew and I will just be out for socially and we'll start to say something. He'll be like, no, 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 just save that till we record. <laughs> yeah. It's like we can no longer just talk about our lives. We're like, no, 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 no that's good stuff. Let's, and, re- let's say that. <laughs> and then you responded by saying, this is why it's good we're not married. <laughs> I was like, well, that's a bit weird. That's, I'm sure there's probably other reasons. There's too. other reasons. <laughs> that's one of the reasons. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but yeah, no, uh, I I, I kind of got off my morning routine. We've talked about this in earlier episodes, but I kind of got off of it over the winter, as sometimes happens, because my my whole routine gets off. Um, mostly because, like with Lush, uh, you know, we're not as active in the winter, so that routine changes. And then with my dislocating my shoulder, that really threw off my exercise regime or routine. Or Same bo- thing, or both. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I just realized I was suffering suffering needlessly by not having a routine and I thrive with a routine. I mean thrive. And when I don't have a routine, what's the opposite of thrive? I dive. <laughs> I yeah. just basically survive. So I basically said two weeks ago, I'm gonna start getting up at five thirty. Angie, same thing. I gotta give props to Angie. She made the same commitment. We get up at five thirty and you will in the morning. Five thirty in the morning, guys folks. <laughs> five thirty AM all right. We don't have to. Like my, my crew doesn't show up to like 8 or 8.30. Like I don't need to. But we get up at 5.30 and we have to have coffee immediately. That's an important part of the routine. And so we made it easy. We went and invested in a coffee machine that we programmed the night before. Hmm. And when we get up, the coffee's ready right at 5.30 a.m. That made a huge difference because we'd have to stand there before like peasants. <laughs> Wait for the water uh-huh. to freaking boil. It's you know, suffering. It, it, oh, it sounds like suffering. It was suffering. It took like 10 minutes and it's like I could have been doing a whole lot of other things. So we made it easy for that morning routine. I lay out my clothes the night before too. I've talked about that before. <laughs> what, what's funny is <laughs> like the 10 minutes, you couldn't actually just do anything else. The, the no. image is that you're just standing there staring <laughs> at the coffee maker <laughs> waiting for it to do its job. And you know what? It <laughs> doesn't go faster when you stare at it <laughs> no. there is a phrase about that i've watched pet kettle never boiled or something like that yeah there know. is a phrase i don't think it's that but no, there I is one so. i just made it <laughs> I watched pot i watched boils. pot never boils yeah. yeah anyways so made it easier and then i just dig right into my that that's the first couple hours of the morning is probably when my brain is at the best that's really when we should record to be honest <laughs> but that is not when your brain's at the best i'm guessing i'm sleeping you're probably still sleeping because of your job and so, um, so I do my reading and writing often in that in that time. And then I've um, I got Beachbody on demand now, which folks I would highly recommend that it's literally a hundred dollars a year. There's eleven hundred different workouts that you can get access to, all by like amazing professionals. And you can choose like whatever one fits your 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 level of fitness, your interest level. Um, you're going to connect with a coach more than someone else. Like I use Sean T and his, his Insanity program. Uh, I love him as a trainer. I love, I just love all his stuff. And Angie, um, she's she's connected with another coach, and he just it it just made life easy. Like so, you got Beachbody on demand. You can and I can do it in my garage and with your shirt off. Yeah, with yeah, five thirty in the morning. It's freezing cold, man. It's just me and my shorts. Yeah, that's <laughs> I it. know, and that's I've... it. So if you're walking by my house at five thirty in the morning, I tell you, you'll see garage no. door open. So usually, actually, at six forty-five because I do have that writing time first. Six forty-five a.m. It has to be done. 
and my staff comes in at like quarter to eight, so I really want to be done by the time they get there. <laughs> so they're going to see something they don't want to see. <laughs> Just huffing and puffing and swearing and sweating. And... That is a beach body that is not on demand. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yes, exactly. Yeah, maybe in seven months I'll let them see. <laughs> oh, I didn't know you'd be arriving now. Hmm, interesting. <laughs> That's great. Um, yeah. And so that's basically my new morning routine, about two and a half hours. And then I'm ready for whatever the day. So my day kind of will start about eight o'clock by then. Hmm. So um, you would think by getting up that early, I would feel more tired. I swear. Since I started getting up at 530, I still kind of go to bed about the same time, about 930 or 10. I feel way more energetic all day long. And and maybe it's the insanity. Maybe it's the insanity of getting up at 530. But there is research that has shown that the earlier you get up, the, the more energy you tend to feel. Well, and it's not even just the, the time you're getting up. It's what you're doing when you get up, right? right. It's yeah. it's putting your mind and your body in like the peak position to succeed. And, you know, that that's obviously going to have a, a positive effect. And and Nick speaks to it today as well. Um, and, and there's much more on his blog as well. Um, one thing that he mentioned today that really hit home for me was how mindfulness and, and meditative practices are both overrated and underrated yeah. and uh, because i was thinking about it afterwards and i was like yeah i overrate and underrate my own physical practice like i both say right. like before doing it i'm like ah do i really need to do this i'm you know does it even work and then <laughs> right. after then i i don't even realize how beneficial it is until sarah tells me like you know you're really different i can notice when you've been meditating right. and not right. and for myself every time after i finish i'm like that i feel so great i feel so just like whole and calm and on point and so like within 20 minutes i can both overrate and underrate meditation and and the the practice of mindfulness so it was one of the great points he made today. And you'll find out a little bit why. You'll find out some of the biology of why sure. uh, through the conversation that you're about to hear. And um, yeah, I guarantee there's going to be something that you take out and, and can apply if you so choose in your own life. Because that's it is what it comes down to. There can be You can read as many blogs and, and be as knowledgeable on, on something as, as you could possibly want. But uh, the, the hard part and the most important part is actually applying it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, well done. Enjoy, folks. <laughs> Dr. Nick Wignall is here with us today, all the way from Albuquerque, New Mexico. And uh, yeah, we're so excited to have you. You are a you have a doctorate in clinical psychology, I believe. Is that yes. correct? Perfect. And you've done a lot of. Uh, a lot of different media work and you do a lot of writing in addition to the, the work that you do um, with psychology and with your clients. And so we, we're going to have a, a pretty broad conversation today because um, you, you've, uh, you've got an, a lot of expertise to, to give us and, um, and a lot of topics that we're, we're very curious about. Well, in fact, Andrew was like, how on earth did you even find this guy? <laughs> Medium. Medium, folks. If you've never checked out Medium, it's phenomenal writing on every subject and and one of nick's many amazing articles was on there and i read it and i was like this is this is a guy that understands and can explain it in like without jargon and uh and that's i think very very rare and so 
um, yeah, that's how I found him. So, so folks, check out Nick's writing on Medium after this as well, and on his website. Yeah, yeah, and we'll we'll definitely provide all those links yeah. in in the show notes and, and all of that. So, yeah. Well, thanks take, for having me on, guys. Yeah. I'm excited. <laughs> yeah, thanks for being here. Um, one of the places that I was, I thought we could start, uh, maybe a little bit um, out of left field here, but I saw that you're an English major. Uh, and I too happen to be an English major. Ah, cool. And uh, so I was curious what, if I were to ask you what your favorite period in English literature might be, and maybe it's modern, but uh, what what do you think, what comes to mind? Yeah, early 20th century. Okay. Um, not, not super contemporary, but yeah, that kind of um, sort of 1900 to World War II. Um, I'm a big uh, T.S. Eliot fan. He was oh, kind of my nice. one I ended up studying a lot um, in in undergrad, and and yeah, I just loved the, a lot of the the poetry, especially from that time. Um, I just I really dig. So yeah, that's that's probably my favorite. Cool. It's it's a complex period for sure. That's it's not not like easy, not an easy intro to poetry. If you if you no, it's don't pretty start, intense. Yeah, don't start with yeah. T.S. Eliot. I actually <laughs> went to the T.S. Eliot um, Museum in Dublin. Um, which oh, was cool. uh, an amazing experience and saw the the second coming like the original manuscript of the second coming which was oh, wow uh, yeah it was a pretty pretty awesome experience okay well that's all the nerding out we need to do on on literature for <laughs> for now <laughs> but um yeah i, I thought uh I, I was curious and and you you do as well on your website have um recommended reading or recommended reads recommended books on various topics whether it's the work that you do or, or habits or and values and and it's another great resource for people to check out um and so i wanted to kind of segue into um into writing as well then because a lot of sure. how we found you how john found you was through your writing and it's uh is it a daily practice is it part of a morning routine or, or what why are you drawn to write as you do mm, okay so first part of the question it's daily-ish. <laughs> so I, I'm a big fan of uh, consistent routines, but also flexible routines. So I don't like to get super rigid about, um, you know, I must write for 60 minutes every single morning. Um, so I'd probably, you know, I'd say four or five days out of the week, um, I do some somewhat substantial writing um, each morning. And yeah, so it's, it's a ritual and I um, I enjoy it for its own sake. Like I just like the act of, of writing. It, it kind of selfishly I feel like it just helps me think and kind of organize my thoughts and you know there's that saying that you don't really know something until you have to teach it yeah Um, and so I feel like it's true getting up in front of a class is probably the best way to (laughs) to learn something or being in a a big seminar or something but um yeah having to write and put things together into an essay or an article or, or really any kind of structured form really forces you to confront how murky your thoughts are. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. easy to think you, you kind of know what you're talking about until you put it out in paper and then uh, you realize, oh yeah, I don't, I don't quite understand things as well as I thought I did. Um, so it's, it's partly just selfish. I, I like it for that sense that it, it, it helps me um, just make sense of my own thinking more. Perfect. So a question I had for you, Nick, was uh, what drew you to clinical psychology? Um, was this something that when you were younger that um, you had an experience that... that you realized you wanted to help people in this way. Um, what was your thought process? Yeah. So I don't know that it was super structured or like there was one, I don't know. There was one, I don't know. I don't feel like I was necessarily drawn to clinical psychology so much that as 
various factors ended up kind of nudging me there kind of in concert. And I, I didn't really realize at the time that they were all sort of pointing me in the same direction. Um, so for instance, like at, from, for as long as I can remember, I, I always enjoyed conversation, like meaningful conversation. I was that weird kid who during like fam family parties and Christmas parties and stuff like that, I wanted nothing to do with the other kids like playing and like fooling around. I just wanted to like listen to the adults talk at the table because I was interested by, you know, more weighty conversations. And mm. growing up, that was just always something I enjoyed. I, I liked having kind of these more meaningful, um, deep in high school conversations. <laughs> Um, so that's a part of it. That's, and I didn't really think about it, but obviously if you're the kind of person who likes, you know, more meaningful one-on-one -on -one conversations, like being a therapist is, you know, not a bad career choice if that's something you really enjoy doing. Um, and it is, it's just something I really love. I also have a pretty strong, um, kind of like twin tendencies. I I'm, I'm pretty intellectual. Like I like, I love playing with ideas, like exploring ideas and thinking through ideas and talking about ideas with people. But I'm also very pragmatic. Like mm -hmm. I, as much as I love ideas, I hate uh, people who get overly dogmatic and, and yeah. or just overly esoteric and theoretical with mm -hmm. ideas. I like um, a good idea applied well in a way that's really useful and helpful. Um, and so that obviously comes up a lot in therapy. Therapy is a lot about that kind of grappling with people's um, complex situations and some pretty complex ideas from the world of psychology and behavioral science, but then making it really applicable and like, okay, how are we going to take this complicated set of ideas and turn it into something you can actually work on this week in your life? Um, so that, that was a big part of it. Um, and then I also, out of undergrad, I was a teacher for a couple of years. I taught middle school and I found that as much as I loved teaching, I was... I found myself more interested in how my students were learning than in what they were learning. Um, so I'd have two kids get the exact same score on a test, but do it in completely different ways. Right. Um, and that was just like fast, like what's going on in their minds? What's going on in their study styles? Like what's, what's happening that kind of leads to those differences. And so that after teaching for a couple of years, um, it made me kind of reconsider, you know, career wise, where do I want to go? And so I started looking into psychology, even though I'd never, I didn't take a single psychology class in undergrad. I was, I was all English and literature. <laughs> um, but that sort of got me on the path. And then I had, I had a lot of really good mentors too who um, were in psychology or mental health generally. And, and so they, they really helped in a very non-pushy way. They kind of helped encourage me and nudge me in that direction too. So that's sorry, that's kind of a long, complicated answer. No. But I feel like it's, it's kind of important for people to hear, for anyone, especially younger people who are, you know, considering careers and unsure of kind of what direction to go. It, I, I think it's important to know that this, this stuff is organic and yeah. it's there that rarely are there these really well-defined structured paths to a given career. Yeah. And you give hope to all us English majors out there who, uh, <laughs> who are like, what the hell do I do with this? <laughs> I, f I found it somewhat humorous that after a couple of years of teaching middle school, you decided to seek out therapy, but you know, <laughs> whichever, you're not necessarily aligned between those two. Things. <laughs> no, no, no correlation at all. <laughs> Uh, one one question I have about the mentors that you found and, and were so influential. I'm always curious about the topic of mentorship and how did you go about finding those mentors or or how did they find you and and uh, you know how how did that relationship develop? Yeah, good question. Um, 
mentors are super important, I think. Um, but they're one of those things that are simultaneously overrated and underrated. You know, like they're, everyone wants a mentor, but very few people, I think, know what really to look for and like what is actually involved in, in a good mentorship relationship. So my, my take on it anyway is that it, it's, um, it's usually very symbiotic. So I don't know that I ever had a good mentorship relationship where I wanted to be someone's mentee and I just kind of like doggedly like pursued them. And even though they didn't want it, eventually they gave in. And hmm. it, it usually was some combination of I saw something in them and they saw something in me. Um, and, and, and then we both kind of put in some effort to get there. Um, hmm. So I think that's, I think that's really important. Um, the other thing that stands out to me about good mentors is that they are, I never had any pushy mentors, which I'm really grateful for. Um, I never had any like overly rigid kind of didactic mentors. They all had this really uncanny ability to be, to be very persuasive and to, to really help me go in a direction that was good for me, but to do it in a way that, that made it feel like it was my decision and my choice. And um, there, there's this great book I love on, on parenting called The Gardener and the Carpenter. Hmm. And the... The, the whole book is right there in the title. Um, the idea is that when it comes to parenting, a lot of people think of it as this, like your kid is, you have a blueprint for your kid and then you kind of like construct the child that you think would be best. Um, and the, the argument of the book is that, that is not at all how anyone who has a kid knows that that's not really true. <laughs> that is just not how human psychology works. Um, it, and it's much more like human development and growth is much more like gardening where you, you plant the seed and you're responsible for sort of tending the environment, giving it water and sunshine. But, but ultimately, you don't get to decide what color the flower is, right? Or how tall it is. Or if it's not growing fast enough and you dig it up and try and open it up forcibly, like good thing, that is not going to lead to good results. So I think good, good mentors have this um, planting seeds approach where, where the, it's never overly directive, but they they sort of nudge you indirectly and, and help you kind of grow on your own. Maybe that's, maybe that's more than you guys wanted to hear, but <laughs> no, no, that's great. It's great. If, if you're saying something we don't like, we'll just cut you off right in the middle yeah. of the sentence. Or and just edit it out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Actually, speaking of editing out, I realized that um, I actually went to the WB Yeats Museum in Dublin. Uh, so I'm probably going to, so not T.S. Eliot, and I was confused if you were I, like... I was, I, yeah, I was wondering about that. Yeah. <laughs> but I wasn't totally positive either, so... <laughs> yeah. So, so do you want to dig into here a little bit, Nick, why Andrew feels the need to lie to impress you? <laughs> no. <laughs> Just, uh, it's a li- it was a literary slip. It's not a big <laughs> okay. deal. It happens to all of us. <laughs> yeah. And I couldn't fact check it because I was like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> never, never heard of any of those people. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so... I was wondering when you mentioned the kids, um, how much have you learned about psychology and the work that you do from your experiences with kids, with your kids? Ooh, great question. I usually get asked that question the other way around. Like how has being a psychologist helped you be a parent? But I, I think in some ways your question's a lot more interesting. Um, so I think the, the first basic answer is it, it just, it, <laughs> I was going to say it gives you empathy, but it's more like it forces you to have empathy. <laughs> you know, having kids is just so, um, it, it's so unpredictable and there's so many things that are just kind of out of your control. And I think if you're, if you're at least halfway paying attention, you realize that while you do have a responsibility to your kids, um, 
you there's just a lot of stuff that is out of your control and it, it really kind of forces you to to make peace with that or at least try your best to make peace with that and that's so that's something that comes up a, a lot in therapy is that you know people are just in really hard difficult situations and you know from my kind of um from my chair from my side of the office it's often i kind of look at it and i go well you know what this is just kind of if you know if, if this is the direction you want to go it's sort of unavoidable that you're going to have these stressors or these difficulties and it's kind of about really coming to terms with that and not living under the delusion that somehow everything's going to be perfect and you can have your cake and eat it too um but i think it it helps that i'm i can empathize a lot more with with that situation with that um you know wanting desperately to be able to control the situation <laughs> um but really not being able to you know when your kids throw in a tantrum or just go to bed or whatever it is um pushing harder is usually not the answer <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, I, I want to get into the subject of control uh, f for my friends and, and my family and my, my wife, but, but not me at all. <laughs> for their sake, <laughs> right. more like. <laughs> Asking for a friend. No, this, this is definitely something that, that stood out to me in your writing. Uh, I, I want to deal, I, I read probably a dozen of your articles leading up to this, but one you actually came out with, I think today, believe it or not, was, was on worry. And, um, and it's basically, I think the title of the article is Why Worry and How to Make It Stop. And, and you made a really good point in there, a really good analogy about worrying is like eating junk food. <laughs> so, so why don't you unpack that for us a little bit and then um, and, and connect that to, to why where control comes in when it comes to worrying and eating junk food? <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, I'll try my best to be concise with this answer. But um, I, I think that just, you know, I think everybody can relate to Basically, worry is something we all fall into. Um, and I think most of us realize that on some level, it's, it's not helpful. Like it, it doesn't actually solve many problems and it stresses us out and makes us anxious. Mm -hmm. And yet it's, it can feel compulsive. Like it, it feels like it, it's hard to stop. Yeah. Some people even, even don't even recognize worry as an activity. They think it's just something that kind of happens to them when really it's, it is something we do, but it's a very habitual kind of compulsive thing. Um, so, but that, the problem, one of the prob big problems with worry is it not only does it make you feel anxious, but it can be a really frustrating experience too. Like, you know, okay, I should stop worrying about this. Like, I know this isn't doing me any good. It's actually making things worse, but I, just, I feel like I can't help myself. And, and so, Part of the thing to understand is that thinking about worry really is about thinking carefully about time scales. And, and what I mean is, in general, worry feels bad. Like the vast majority of the time, it just makes you anxious. But when you, very, when you first start doing it, one of the reasons we, we worry instinctively is it basically, it gives us something to do. It makes us feel like we're in control in a situation which is almost always totally outside of our control. And as human beings, if there's one thing psychologically that we're really, really allergic to and terrified of, it's helplessness. Mm -hmm. like we hate feeling helpless. It doesn't matter who you are, almost everybody just really can't stand that feeling of like being in a tough situation and not being able to do anything about it. Yeah. And you have a great and, point, Nick, where you say most of us would rather feel anxious than helpless. Yeah. And that, so that's, that's really what worry is, is it's a, it's a kind of emotional substitution where you're feeling helpless and then you, you habitually, you start worrying because 
it makes you feel anxious, which sucks, which doesn't feel good. But often for a lot of us, it either it feels less bad than right. feeling helpless, or we at least imagine that it's going to make us feel less bad. So that, that the reason I use the junk food analogy is because if you re- I think if you really stop and slow down and think about it the next time you're worrying, it, it very briefly tastes good. Like when you, when you eat a candy bar, right? For the, the first like three seconds right. are super delicious, <laughs> right? When it's going down. Yeah. But then, you know, 60 seconds later, yeah. you got that kind of crummy feeling like in your gut <laughs> yeah. and you're like, I don't feel so good. <laughs> and then the like waves of guilt and shame and like, I really didn't eat that extra 250 calories and that's going to be like yeah. 55 minutes on the treadmill. And, right. You know, it's kind of in the, the, for the vast majority of the time, it's not at all worth it. But we are, our, our brains for a lot of very good reasons are predisposed to prioritize what feels right in the short term, like right now. And it, it's very hard to overcome that impulse. And so worry, like a lot of things, it, the reason we struggle with it so much is because we want to feel good right now. And it's really hard to overcome that, even though we probably know on some level that it will lead to feeling worse in the long run. So it's, whether it's like exercising or saving money for retirement or biting your tongue in an argument with your spouse or like whatever it is we are one of our fundamental difficulties is we just we want to feel good right now um and and when you're feeling really helpless because of a situation you can't control that urge to feel less helpless right now is a really can be a really powerful motivator for this habit of worry which is super destructive in the long term but i think it's if you're gonna get out of it it's essential to understand the function of worry. Like you're not worrying because you're an idiot or because you're a masochist, right? <laughs> you're, you're worrying because it does something for you. It, at least on in the very short term, it makes you feel better, right? Well, and I, I love how in the article you go through the reasons we eat junk food. It's not because of something our parents did or it's not because we're a masochist. <laughs> you know, you went through all those things. It's just because we want short term a short-term hit it of something. Good. It tastes good. Yeah, it feels right? good. And so I love that analogy of like, you know, I have never thought of it like that. It's just like, you know, running it over in our mind that this worry or this concern or this anxiety is like somehow relieving that feeling of helplessness, but often increasing it later on. And yeah, it's a little like the other metaphor I use sometimes is like just the other night, my uh, one of my kids found this old toy that had, has this just really annoying song that's super <laughs> loud and you can't turn it down. And it's just and they were playing with it and it was just really driving me nuts. So my solution was to open up Spotify and turn up my music like louder, <laughs> right. you know, like drown it out, yeah. um, which of course is in the long run, not great. Cause now like I'm hyper stimulated with all sorts of noise, which is just going to lead to even more stress. Um, but that was the instinct is like, this thing's bad. And I can't, I can't literally, I'm not going to literally deprive my kid of this toy. <laughs> that <they> like, <laughs> But I'm going to like sneakily try and drown it out with something else. Um, Interesting, and so yeah. I think that's, you know, wor- worry is all about the illusion of control, w- which alleviates that the pain of helplessness. Um, and mm-hmm. so I, I think it's just really key. If you're going to break out of that habit of worry, it's key to to be kind of validating with yourself to understand I, I'm doing this for a reason. Maybe in the long run, it's not a great reason, but it is serving a function. And you have to understand that function first if you're going to replace it with something more healthy going forward. Mm-hmm. 
That's that's awesome. And there's there's three different paths that I want to go on right now, and I'm having to figure out which which one to go with. But I think um, didn't Robert Frost have a poem about this? Probably there were three, three paths. That yeah. yeah, I think it was T. S. Eliot. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but I think the the path that I'm going to start on for now, at least, is um, on negative self talk because when when you talk about how worry is, it's a it comes from a place of positive intention. Like we, we, hmm. it worked once for us maybe, or, or it can be effective at times to motivate us, or it's better than the alternative of helplessness. But negative self-talk I find is just like one of the great plagues that hmm. uh, exists in, in our society today. And, and I just, I, I really want to help myself understand why um, and help others possibly as well, because I just don't see what the the positive intention of self talk might be, um, but maybe understanding that is is one of the ways to um, get around it. Yeah, that's a great question, and I I completely agree about self talk be, negative self talk being just an absolute plague on it's it's one of the very few completely com, common denominators among people who show up in my office is just they are frankly they're awful to themselves in their head just really brutal and harsh and and mean just like plain mean to themselves in their minds and a lot of times they don't even recognize it like they're not even aware of it um i use my one of my metaphors for negative self-talk is it's like i tell people so imagine if you have this grumpy little leprechaun following you around (laughs) all day long hurling insults at you just every single thing you do putting you down telling you an awful person you are and even if you even if you knew the leprechaun was just full of it and none of the things they said were true, if you had someone following you around hurling insults at you all day long, you would feel rotten. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't matter. You could be the Dalai Lama and you would feel like garbage after two hours, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's I think it's important to acknowledge how just how pervasive and how big a deal negative self talk is for people. Um, I think of that but, guy in Happy Gilmore. <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> when he hires the guy, Shooter McGavin hires him. Yeah. Happy, you jackass! <laughs> yeah. it's over and over and over. Yeah. You jackass! Exactly right. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Anyways. Um, but yeah, Andrew, so your question about, but where does it come from? Like, why do we, why do, we do this to ourselves if it's so awful? Mm-hmm. So the, the, I've, I basically have two answers that I, that I think are, and I'm sure there are more, but there are two that are pretty universal. And, and the first one is quick, which is sometimes it's just habit. Like a lot of times we, we internalize negative self-talk based on our models early in life. So like if, if you have parents or caregivers or siblings who are just, re, who are really harsh and negative in the way they speak generally, it's, it's not inevitable, but it definitely makes it more likely that that's how you are going to internalize your own voice. I mean, just think this is how kids learn. Generally kids learn to speak by listening to how other people speak. Mm-hmm. They like, they learn how to communicate. They learn everything by model, by looking at the models of people around them. Yeah. So I think that's, that's part of it. It's just, it's an old habit that never got updated. That's just hung around right. um, yeah. since very early on. Right. Um, but I think another, especially in kind of Western culture, and I know especially in, in American culture anyway, one of the really big sources I think of negative self-talk is what I call the drill sergeant theory of motivation, <laughs> which is I think a lot of us grow up learning that 
the way to be successful and to achieve and to do well in life generally, um, it usually starts in school. This, this message gets internalized in school, but that the, the way to be successful is to be hard on yourself. Mm-hmm. And we've all seen movies where like the protagonist like goes to boot camp or whatever, and they have the really like tough, hard ass drill sergeant who <laughs> makes a man out of them and they build character and blah, 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 you know, all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. That's, you know, it's caricatured in movies, but I really think on a, on a kind of deep cultural level, we believe that we really believe that, that the way to, that if you are not pretty harsh and intense and even like mean or critical with yourself, that you're going to become a slacker and you're just going to fail at everything and end up kind of no, a no good nobody. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think we, we, over time, we, we, what, what happens is we're successful. We study hard. Right. And and we, and as we're doing it, we tell ourselves like, Oh no, you got, if you don't put another hour, you're going to fail. And then you're not going to get into a good college and then you're going to have a crummy career and you're going to end up in a van down by the river. <laughs> That's always where it ends. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Another Saturday Night Live I connection love that. there. Oh, man. <laughs> First Adam Sandler. Now we've got Chris Farley. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the psychology here is really important, I think, which is that the, pr- the problem is we do succeed and we succeed. And then because we did all the negative self talk, we think that we succeeded because of the because negative self talk. Yeah. So, w- w- and then what happens is we keep succeeding. And the more we succeed and the higher and higher the stakes become, the, the more terrified we are that if I let go of this key ingredient, which is being an asshole to myself, <laughs> I'm going to lose it all. Like I'm just going to plummet. Everything is going to go downhill. I'm going to lose everything. Um, and so we, we keep it up. And it's this crazy vicious cycle where we, we achieve more and then we believe even more that we have to be super hard on ourselves. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of it comes down to this faulty belief of motivation. And what I, I talked about this in a recent article, but in my experience in therapy, and I, I work with a lot of pretty, pretty successful, like high achieving people, uh, CEOs, surgeons, attorneys. And I often run, will run this experiment with these people and say, on some relatively small scale for a limited amount of time, what if we just, let's just experiment with what happens if you cut back a little bit on that self-talk? Like, let's see, like how badly does your performance decrease mm-hmm. if you're just like a little gentler with yourself? Mm-hmm. And inevitably, nothing bad happens. In fact, performance usually goes up because all that energy that you were channeling into being a jerk to yourself <laughs> Now, now you can channel it to the, whatever you're actually doing, whatever, however you want to perform. Um, and, then, and then you just keep running increasingly big experiments like this where you, you, you keep practicing giving up more and more of that self-talk and creating a new belief about motivation, which is that it has nothing to do with how hard I am on myself. I will succeed despite... Uh, successful people are successful despite their negative self-talk, not because mm. of it. But that's, that's something you can hear intellectually, but it's not going to change anything until you prove it to yourself through these kind of like experiences that give your brain real data and evidence. So what would you say ultimately is the solution to this besides changing how you speak to yourself? But, you know, because we said earlier, we worry because it was doing, it was coming from a positive intention. And I think the self-talk is coming from a positive intention, even though we say things like, you know, 
you, you dumbass, you know, or you, you always screw it up or whatever. It, there's yep. a positive intention there. But like I said, it, it, it's not working. So what's the ultimate solution? Is it is it the belief that we're enough as we are? Um, or, I mean, that sounds like a pretty hard place to get to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it, it, <laughs> <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> it depends a lot on the, the type of self-talk and where it comes up and what it's about. Um, but I think a, a pretty universal hurdle that we all have to overcome if we are going to start to be a little nicer and more gentle with ourselves is to realize that this, this self-talk is, it's not a personality trait. It's a habit. It's, it's something you've built up over time, largely outside of your awareness and, and for reasons that may have been perfectly valid at some time early on in your past, but it's essential that you start to see it from the correct um, level of analysis, which is, if you have a lot of negative self-talk, it's not because you have bad brain chemistry or defective genes, or even that your, your mommy didn't love you enough. It's that for some probably reasonable situation, you started developing this habit of being kind of tough on yourself. And like a lot of habits, it grew and grew and grew and morphed and became this huge thing operating largely outside of your awareness um, that is really like dictating huge parts of your life. But to see it as fundamentally a habit is crucial because that means you can start to have more agency over it. Mm -hmm. You can start to observe it and like get distance on it and go, oh, hey, like there goes my negative self-talk again. This feels awful, but this is like, this is a thing. It's like the classic um, devil and angel on each shoulder. Right. Like once you can externalize it and say, oh yeah, this is this thing I tend to do, you get a little distance on it right? And once you can observe it and get a little distance on it, then you can go in and start to make some small changes. You can start questioning, you know, like, oh, that first thought that popped into my head was you're a piece of garbage because you, you know, bombed this presentation or something. Well, you, you can kind of step back and go like, hmm, okay, well, that's one thought, but are, are, are there other ways to look at what just happened? And you can start to become more flexible. And so I think once you... Once you start to see self-talk as a habit, it opens up the possibility of building new habits of talking to yourself. Um, and that's, I think ultimately that's, that's how you start to change. But, it, but it's hard work. I mean, it is, it's, it's, it's like a major exercise regimen or something, like getting in, getting in shape or correcting your finances after decades of you know, bad money habits. Or like, it's, a, it's a pretty major undertaking. It's very doable, but it is you got to be pretty serious about it. Yeah. I, I think just eating a candy bar sounds like a better, better choice. I think let's <laughs> <laughs> just go with that. Um, no, it's, I, I love the way that you're able to explain that. And, and just in such a practical sense, um, it's, it comes through in your writing as well. And I think it, it makes it a lot more um, accessible to, you know, your understanding of the brain and, and brain chemistry and, and, and habit systems and neural pathways, the stuff that you're talking about is, is quite complex, but it, you're, you're able to bring it forward in, in a really straightforward way. And, and it's much appreciated because this is, uh, this is stuff that I, at least two of us are being helped already and, and probably, <laughs> probably a lot more. Yeah. Um, one of the things as well that uh, you wrote about that I was reminded of when, when you were speaking there about uh, resilience and, and you talk about accepting reality and being flexible are, are big pieces of being 
resilient. Um, and yeah, maybe you could just talk a little bit more about about resilience because it's kind of one of the the central themes of our our podcast is about um, we we often are bringing people on who have been through incredible ordeals and have st- still found you know something to learn during that or, or afterwards and and really we we yeah we talk about the traits of resilience and and how to build those so if you could just touch on that a little bit more that would be amazing yeah sure so i think um you can start with the negative which is what do people who are really not resilient look like and and there are a lot of factors there are a lot of factors that go into whether someone um really struggles to be resilient some of which are external it could be your environment it could be your culture it could be your it could be your biology, right? So it's, it's not entirely up to you. But um, a common trait, I think, among people who, who really do struggle to be resilient is what I think of as rigidity. So, and especially kind of psychological or mental rigidity, mm-hmm. which is a fancy way of just saying you get stuck. In particular, you get stuck thinking in one kind of direction. So if, if, if something, um, you know, you, let's say you're given a presentation at work, right? And it doesn't go so well. You know, you kind of flub the last slide and it's a little, you know, everyone's just kind of like, you know, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, how do you, how do you think about what happened afterwards? I, I guarantee it for 98% of the population, your first thought is going to be fairly catastrophic. Like, oh my God, that was the worst presentation ever. My boss hated it. I'm probably going to get fired. You know, you're just going to go down that Mm -hmm. spiral. And that's, there's very good reasons for that. Like for, from a evolutionary biological perspective, there, it, it, it makes sense that our brain was most concerned with just staying alive, right? That's the whole, that's all our bodies really care about is just staying alive long <laughs> enough to pass on our yeah, DNA. Sure. Um, so what's most important is just really being aware of the catastrophic outcomes. So there's a reason we all tend to catastrophize a little bit. But what, what's key is to be flexible enough to understand that just because a thought is the first one that comes into my consciousness doesn't mean there's anything special about it. It's just the first one. Just because it showed up first doesn't mean it has more authority or weight or meaning or predictive value than any other thought. So people who, are, who tend to be very resilient in the face of stressors or even traumas and catastrophes, um, one of the things you'll notice is they're flexible in how they think about what happened to them. Now, this does not mean they're like Pollyanna-ish and super positive and, you know, smiling in front of the mirror, telling themselves how great they are all the time. <laughs> Flexibility means you take multiple perspectives and interpretations so that you can try and arrive at the most realistic understanding of what's happening and what it means for you. Hmm. And, and oftentimes, it's not the most horrific, catastrophic thing. Well, and Nick, one thing that that made me think of is I think a lot of the reasons we suffer is because that first thought that comes, we assume it's true. Yep. Right. And so do you have a practical way where we can fact check our own thoughts? Uh, yeah, sure. So there's a there's a few things to do. Um, the, the first thing, which is it's not super practical, but is really important um, is to and, and the practical the way to try to make it a little practical is to think about what I call the pause button, which is almost anytime something, anytime you feel really bad, all of a sudden something happens and you just feel awful. Are your, what you're going to want to do is react 
either behaviorally or mentally. You're going to start worrying or ruminating, or you're going to go try and distract yourself or numb it out or something. And almost always the most helpful thing is to hit the pause button just briefly and say, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, okay, what just happened here? I'm feeling awful. I don't want to feel awful anymore, but I need to really get a sense for what's actually going on here. And that's key because our thoughts are lightning fast. Like you can think way faster than you can speak or behave or do it. So you have to be able to pause and slow yourself. It's kind of like a, it's like bullet time in the matrix. I know you guys can probably relate. And to you're this a movie buff, just like us. <laughs> <laughs> totally. It's really a superpower to be able to slow down your, your internal state right. and realize, oh yeah, that thought just popped into my mind. Cause if you, if you can't do that, if you can't observe and see your own thoughts, you, you can't change them. You're going to be powerless to them. So the first step always has to be awareness. Like you have to be able to, and that, that sounds fancy. All that means is you have to be able to think about your thinking. You have to be able to watch your thoughts, right? You have to be able to notice, oh yeah, I just thought that to myself. Huh? Like what if I stopped back and, and looked at it? And you have to, and to do that, you got to hit the pause button. You have to be able to hit the pause button. So that's the first thing I would say. Um, is really try and cultivate a little habit of hitting the pause button. And, and the key there is to do it in really low stakes situations at first. Practice in really small, non-distressing situations. Yeah, I was going to say when someone's having an anxiety attack, the thoughts are going like a million miles an hour. And to, oh, yeah. and to tell them just to be like, just stop, you know, or do the <laughs> matrix thing. They're going to yeah. be like, I'm just trying to catch my breath. Like, uh, and, well, think about the matrix. Neo doesn't <laughs> learn how to like go into bullet time true, right true. off the bat. Yeah, what does he do? He spent like half the movie is him kind of like training and learning and, 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 and you start small. Took you know? him, and so, took him like an hour, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you start with just that, that weird little side glance, your, the clerk at the grocery store gave you. And your first thought is like, oh, what a, you know, yeah, yeah. and then, but to go, oh, wait a second. Let me hit the, this is not like a, a panic attack situation, but if you practice in these lower stakes situations, you build up that muscle mm. so that, and if the more you build it up, the more you're going to be able to utilize it in those really high stakes situations. Mm. So you really have to look at it as you're, you're building a muscle and you start, you always start small. Um, so practice in really ordinary situations. Um, the, the other thing you can start to do is what's called, um, and this is a technique from, from cognitive behavioral therapy, but it, it's really useful for, for any kind of situation, really, when you're kind of emotionally upset. It's called a, it's called a thought record or a thought diary. And, and the gist of it is you, you pause and then you, you basically ask yourself what's going on here. And, and there's a few different elements to it. There's what happened, right? Literally, like someone made a snarky comment or I flubbed the presentation or, you know, whatever it is, right? Then, how was I feeling, right? And you get specific, like I felt anxious, right? Or I felt whatever. And you kind of rate it. How intense was that? It was like a you know, five out of 10 or 10 out of 10. You know, I'm about to have a panic attack. And then you look for, well, what, what was the thought or the interpretation that connected the event to how I felt, mm -hmm. right? So, oh, that person made that sarcastic comment. I felt anxious because in my mind, I said to myself, oh my God, did, did I totally screw up that, that last line, right? And, and then, what you, then what you do is you, you 
try to come up with alternative ways of interpreting what just happened, right? So it might be, well, that, you know, that coworker just had, you know, has a new baby at home and is going on three hours of sleep and is just super grouchy to everybody. And so maybe it has nothing to do with the quality of my presentation and more to do with their state of mind, Mm -hmm. right? Or maybe, yeah, maybe I didn't exactly nail that presentation, but I certainly didn't completely screw it up. I mean, I got the main just across. Um, My little zinger of a joke at the end kind of fell flat, but that doesn't mean I screwed the whole thing up, right? So you, you literally practice alternative explanations or interpretations for what happened. And then after you've come up with a couple of those, you ask yourself, okay, so where's my anxiety at right now? Like, do I still feel, is it still a seven out of 10? No, you know what? It's still there, but it's like, it's like a five now. And what that, that reinforces, okay, when I do this, when I think flexibly, I tend to feel better as a result. Hmm. And that, so that's, this is a whole kind of exercise that you, and you can learn a lot more about how to do this, but that really is the, there's no like magic trick. You've, if you've got this habitual way of thinking about bad things, when negative things happen, you have to practice thinking in a different way, right? It's like, it literally is mental flexibility. It's like stretching your thinking muscle. And the better you can get at doing that, the more even and kind of balanced your reactions are going to be to really difficult situations. Yeah, I I love the idea of um, practicing in minor situations first because I was reading in in one of your articles about this process, basically pausing, thinking about your thoughts and then um, generating different thoughts. And and then my initial thought was like, who the hell could actually do this in a stressful moment? Yeah. Like you would, ha- you must have to be a Zen master <laughs> to be able to yeah. um, actually practice this. If you know you're in an argument with your spouse or whatever it might be, but um, the idea of you know training in in little micro doses first um, that that actually is practical and and um, but yeah, first you need that awareness piece, and also you need to make a choice that this is an issue for me. I need to address it at its core and start practicing it. And go ahead. No, it's just, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think it's great to point out that you, you know, the, the analogy would be like, you don't just decide to run a marathon and just like put your shoes on and go out for a run, right? right and do 26.2 miles. Like that's nuts, right? Nobody could do that. Yeah. Very few people could do that. <laughs> uh, you, you, go for, you go for a walk around the block for a week, right? And then, and then you jog for 10 minutes and then, you know, you, and so, yeah, you're absolutely right. You, this is, you really have to start small. Um, and, and another quick thing I thought I'd mention is doing it on paper mm. is just super helpful. Um, really kind of externalizing it and getting it, um, you know, sort of like when you, when you learn math or whatever, like any kind of you, doing it externally helps in the beginning. And then as you get proficient with it, you can start to do it all in your head, but it, it often helps to kind of do this process. Um, it's out like, loud or on paper. It's like my dad used to say, he's a math teacher, you got to show your work. It sounds yeah. like, it sounds like you, what you're saying. Exactly. Here. That's a great way of putting it. Yep. Mm-hmm. So I talked about, a, or I mentioned the idea of a Zen master to, to be able to actually practice this. Um, but you're someone who's an expert in this field and, and really knows these um, strategies well. But I'm wondering um, which of them you need to practice in your own experience, in your own life, or, or, uh, 
what what learnings of yours have been most effective or, or most helpful for uh, encountering some of these topics, negative self-talk, stress, um, you know, a- any of this stuff? What what works best for you? Should ask his wife, Andrew. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a great point. <laughs> um, so I'd say there, there's two that really come to mind. Um, the first is along the lines of what we were just talking about. I had this when I was um, maybe about 10 years ago, as I was just starting to get into psychology, I, I read this book by one of the kind of founders of cognitive behavioral therapy. And it, he made this point that what we talked about earlier, which is just because a thought pops into mind doesn't mean it's special, doesn't mean it's particularly authoritative, doesn't, doesn't mean it even means anything. Just because it exists doesn't mean, you know, we have dreams about all sorts of wackadoodle stuff. They don't necessarily mean anything, <laughs> right? And your <laughs> random thoughts that pop into your head especially after a difficult situation, they don't necessarily mean anything other than that, like your brain's a little freaked out, right? Whether it's rational or not, or helpful or not, or like, who knows? So I think uh, cultivating a healthy skepticism of your own thoughts is really important. Mm-hmm. I think most, most of us just kind of take orders from yeah. our thoughts without really questioning them. And, and, when I say skepticism, it doesn't mean thoughts are meaningless and that you should just ignore them all. <laughs> but to just assume that they're all completely true and meaningful and, and you should go with them wherever they're taking you is really just a setup for unhappiness and, and a lot of suffering. So, um, and there, there are lots of kind of different ways to do that, but I, I just want to point that out. Like on a high level, um, it's important to be kind of a little bit skeptical of your own thoughts. Um, so that's something I, I try and, you know, I think about frequently. The other thing, and this is, this is another one of these things that is both simultaneously over and underrated, but mm-hmm. mindfulness meditation. Mm-hmm. I know. I mean, I don't know. Even I, when I hear people talk about mindfulness, I roll my eyes because <laughs> there's just like so much uh, superficial stuff about mindfulness in, in the media and you, you hear about it and there's, you know, celebrities on magazine covers talking about how mindfulness changed their life. It's trending. It's definitely trending. So (laughs) trending, which is annoying and leads to all sorts of like (laughs) just bad knockoff versions of what it, what it really is. But I will say there is nothing I do that is more helpful for my mental health and emotional well-being and personal growth generally than a relatively regular mindfulness practice. Um, And all that is there's, people make mindfulness to be way more complicated than it actually is. Um, and there are, there are lots of different versions of meditation and mindfulness and whatever, and they're all fine um, depending on your goals. But all I do is I, I carve out some time. Usually it's between 15 minutes and 30 minutes uh, most mornings. And I sit down, close my eyes, and I try to focus my attention on my breath, on the sensation of breathing. There's nothing mystical or woo-woo about it. It's just literally, how does it feel to have air go in through your nose and come back out through your mouth? Um, I'm not doing deep breathing. It's nothing, it's really nothing special. It's just literally, how does it feel? And what happens in this process is you sit there for about five seconds and you're going to find your mind all over the place. You're no longer thinking about your breath. You're thinking about what you have to get at the grocery store or what you're going to write about in your article today or you know that fight you had with my a fight I had with my wife last night or or how stupid this mindfulness exercise is. <laughs> yeah. like, I'm not getting anything out of this. And it's so hard and whatever. And what the core of mindfulness is realizing that your mind is somewhere other than where you want it to be 
and then bringing it back to where it's supposed to be. Hmm. That's literally it. So you have a goal, which is I want to keep my attention on my breath, on how it feels to breathe. And the exercise is noticing your mind getting distracted and then gently, not harshly, <laughs> gently, just bringing your focus say, back to your breath, saying, okay, you got distracted. It makes sense. Mind gets distracted all the time. But for the next 15 minutes, like we're supposed to be focusing on my breath, so I'm going to bring it back. So what this does is it cultivates two super important psychological skills. These are like, this is like the pull-up and push-up of mental health, which is being able to observe your own mind, to notice when your mind is doing something kind of wonky or something that maybe is not in your best interest, right? So noticing when you're distracted, for instance, that's, it's the same skill you need when you're starting to spiral into like anxiety or rumination, being able to catch yourself early and go, whoa, 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 this line of thinking, I know where this goes and I do not want to go farther down this road. So that's the first part, observation of your own mind. Um, sometimes you hear it called metacognition, thinking about your thinking. Hmm. Then the second part is returning your attention from something that, it, that you feel pulled towards to something else that's important to you. And this is the, this is the fundamental muscle that you need to disengage from all sorts of unhelpful habits of thought from worry to rumination to negative self-talk, judgmental self-talk. All of that is your mind is doing something you don't especially want it to be doing. Can you redirect it to something more productive? Which as you know, is incredibly hard to do when you're in the middle of a panic attack, right? Or you're in the middle of a fight with your spouse, right? It's, it feels about as hard as deciding to just throw on some shoes and run for a marathon. Mm -hmm, like, for sure. It's really, really hard. And you, frankly, it's super unrealistic to expect that you will be able to do that if you don't work that muscle out. It is really unrealistic for 99.9% .9 of the population to think with no training, they could just go run a marathon. I mean, it's just bonkers, right? No one would expect that. Yeah. You, you, you would train, you would put in the time, you'd put in some effort, and you'd get stronger. And so to me, that's, that's kind of the core of mindfulness and why I feel like it's so important for me. I, my mental health depends on me being a good steward of my own attention. Because if I let my attention get drawn to and mired in stuff that is unrealistically negative or harsh or critical or whatever, that's how I'm going to feel, right? On the other hand, if I can redirect it to something uh, more realistic or constructive, I'm going to feel a hell of a lot better. Well, um, and, and speaking of feeling a hell of a lot better, like these things you're suggesting are, are difficult to do, especially in the beginning, but almost impossible to do when, when your, your other parts of your life are out of balance, I find. Mm -hmm. Like when I'm not exercising, when I'm not sleeping properly, when I'm not eating properly, and then you try and, you know, you know be Neil... <laughs> <laughs> with your mind right. it's not going to happen right and so it just it, it makes me think like um the balance is so key like you can't all of a sudden have be still so out of balance with those other things and then try to attempt to do all these things absolutely yeah. i mean and that's a, that's a super great point john i'm really really important that you can't you certainly can't run a marathon but no. you can't even train for a marathon right. if you're having major conflict with your spouse right. or 
if you're constantly stressed about finances or if you're eating like garbage or you're just not sleeping well, like you can't even get to the point where you can practice. Right. So you're totally right that the, the like fundamental life stuff has to be in reasonable balance and good shape first. Mm -hmm. I think that's, I'm really glad you brought that up. I think that's super important. One more thing that I, I wanted to bring up another topic that you have such a great wealth of information on and is one that you just mentioned there being stress and you make a connection between uh, being busy and suffering um, chronic stress and, and something that I've kind of learned and, and said a few times on the podcast is that being busy is a choice that we have. You know, we, we all talk about how busy we are. Um, you know, I, I, even after kind of understanding that it's a choice, I still say, you know, I'm really busy and, and uh, often, yeah, that's code for like, I'm really stressed out, but you actually, um, make the bridge from feeling busy to, to suffering from high levels of stress and, and cortisol, um, surging through your brain. So can you just, um, elaborate on, on that a little bit? Yeah. So, um, I think biology is a good place to start with this, which is, and if, if you, if you're interested in the topic of stress, by far the best book to read on stress is a book called why zebras don't get ulcers by Robert Sapolsky, who's one of the best stress researchers in the world. It's cool. just a phenomenal, but everything I learned about stress comes from that book. I feel like, um, but the key idea is that the, the human body is we are designed in such a way that we are really good at tolerating intense, acute bursts of stress. So, you're out on the savanna, you know, looking for grubs and a lion starts running after you. We are designed to be able to run like hell for 15 minutes to try and escape and survive, right? Intense survival grade threats. We're, we're pretty good at handling that. What we are not good at handling is low to moderate grade chronic stressors, hmm. right? So things like, I don't know, having having a crummy manager at work who's always like putting you down and, and, you know, or constant like conflict with a spouse or perpetual worry about your finances or these things are, our bodies are really not good at handling chronic stress like that. So I think that's just the biology of it, of it is really important to understand that it seems like um, intense stress is the, is the problem, but really the vast majority of the time it's, it's, medium or even low grade stress that really does the most damage both on a biological level but but also on kind of a psychological and emotional level i mm. think too what, um, what, what do you think about kelly mcconnell's book on on stress and, and how stress is really only bad if we think it's bad for us are you familiar with that book um yeah i haven't actually read it but i'm definitely familiar with her work okay. and, and that concept it i I think from a technical perspective, she, she's probably right. Like, um, there's a difference between, um, being exposed to a stressor and feeling stressed. Right. Right. So if, if, if you're, um, I don't know, like if you're being chased by a lion, but you, you know that the lion actually has a leash on it and it can't actually get to you that that's going to help you feel a lot less stressed. Right. right? That's right. A, kind of a silly example. What, yeah. what I don't love about that, line of thinking is that it can, I'm not saying she says this, but a lot of people can interpret it to mean like, it's all in my head. If I just like kind of think differently about stuff, I, I, I shouldn't be stressed. Right. And, and the problem with that is for most, for most people, I think it's the real challenge is 
organizing your life in such a way that you're you're not exposed to as many of these small to medium grade stressors on a regular basis. And, and so it can be a distraction, I think, to think, well, I just need to do more like deep breathing exercises or, or like we were talking about with changing your thoughts. Like if I just am more flexible in my thinking, everything will get better. Um, no, like I think a lot of times you got to make the hard decisions to fundamentally reorganize the structure of your life. Yeah, because you made the point in one of your articles about willpower. And you said willpower, willpower is handy when you're in a pinch, but it's not good to base your life on it, where you're just always like, you know, having to go dig, you know, dig down deep and go to the go to the source and get this willpower to get through life. Right. You got to change. Yeah, it's like your yeah. it's like your emergency break. Right. It's good right, to right. Have, but you never want to rely on it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Good point. Right. You want to design your life such that you don't need it in the first place. And yeah. that no one can do that perfectly. But most of us are terrible at doing that. We constantly let in a steady stream of new stressors all the time for a variety of reasons. And that is the real problem with chronic stress, I think. Well, we're at one hour, so we, we should probably respect your time. Maybe Andrew has a question left here. Yeah, I thought um, maybe a good way to, to wrap up uh, was to borrow a, a Tim Ferriss question here. I'm, we're, <laughs> we're big fans of his. Uh, and uh, one, one question that he often asks is, and I, I really think it, it works for this conversation, um, if you could have a billboard with a, a singular singular message on it to post mm-hmm. to, to as many people as, as you possibly could, what might it say? Man, that is a great question. And I wish I had a really pithy, quick answer. (laughs) Something along the lines of, um, like, why not be gentle with yourself? I I think gentleness is a, it's a virtue we desperately need in modern life. I I think we are so, and this goes back to Andrew, your point about self-talk and how pervasive it is and what a problem it is. We are just so, we're so judgmental. Like we really are. And often it's the people who claim to be not judgmental who are the most judgmental <laughs> of other people and themselves. Like we're, we're just so hard on ourselves and like mean mm-hmm. to ourselves. And it, it's just really toxic and poisonous. Um, and so the billboard thing, the idea of gentleness is I, it's, you can't just tell people, well, stop being hard on yourself. You need to provide an alternative way of being. And I, I just love, I really love this, this idea of gentleness because um, I think it's, it's very concrete. Like we all, everybody knows gentleness. Like everyone has some experience with gentle, whether it's like holding your, you know, your newborn kid, like right after they're born and that, that feeling of gentleness or whether it's like kind words from a coach or a teacher at some point in your life. But we know what gentleness is and it's, it's not too woo woo. It's not too like out there and, and, and weird. I think everybody can understand that. And I just think it's a, it's a, yeah, it's a virtue. We all need to, or we all could benefit tremendously from aspiring towards to being a little bit more gentle and really gentle with ourselves. Cause I, I ultimately, I think it's hard to be gentle with other people if you're a tyrant to yourself. Like, I, I just don't think that works. So it, it's not self-indulgent. It's not narcissistic. It's, I think it's necessary. If you, if you want to be kinder and more compassionate with other people in your life, like start with yourself. Well, and here's the irony. As I was listening to you, I, I said to myself, I'm shit at being gentle. Like I, I really, I really did. I'm not, I'm not a gentle guy. And, and I started judging myself. I'm like, I break stuff. I'm hard on myself. But like, 
this is where I need to rely on your training. As yeah, which is such an intense comment. I'm yeah. shit at being gentle myself, right? <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> right? But it's like, I need to see that and then begin to, to, to uh, you know, follow your instructions. And speaking of instructions, folks, um, Nick has a course online called Master Your Moods. And, and I believe it's Emotional Boot Camp or something. Is it, is it emotional, emotional Fitness Boot Camp. Yeah, Emotional Fitness Boot Camp. And, and I think you put it out like a, a number of times a year. And so we'll, we'll, put, we'll put that in the show notes so, so people can go to your website and, and message you for more information on that. But Yeah, yeah. What, what's the best way to get a hold of you, Nick? Um, just my website, I, uh, nickwignall.com, N-I-C-K-W-I-G-N-A-L-L.com. Um, you just Google me and it, it should come up. I... Um, I hop on my mailing list, my, my newsletter. Um, it's where I send out, it's really short and simple. I just send out my new articles each week. Um, but it's, it's, I, pri- I prioritize communication with my newsletter. So I get a lot of emails, but I can't respond to everything. But if you're on my newsletter, I, I really try and make an effort to, to reach out and talk to everybody um, who's on the newsletter. So Perfect. that would be a good place to start probably. Well, Great. and you did respond to our e- email by coming on the show. And we, we really appreciate that. It's, it's true. Yeah. yeah. And I appreciate you guys having me on. It's, yeah. been a, it's been a blast. Yeah. I, and I'm subscribed to the newsletter now, so I can get, uh, I can get lots more of this gold, uh, on a weekly basis. And as well, you mentioned Google, I Googled you initially and it came up with Nick Wignall medium and, I uh, at first I was like, oh, oh he also he also speaks to the dead, <laughs> which is not correct. It's uh, it's that you have articles on media. <laughs> on media, yeah. So you know, you do a lot, but but not that. At this not point. quite. He's working on it. Well, I feel like in many ways we just began this conversation, and so Nick, uh, with your permission, we'll probably have you back at some point. Um, Absolutely, yeah. It would be it'd be great to continue the conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks so much, and for and, sure. All the best until that next meeting. Thank you, guys. Thanks a lot. Well, that's the episode. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. If you liked what you heard here, check out the website. ObstacleCoursePodcast.com. That's where you can subscribe, check out the show notes. If we had one request, we'd ask you to leave us a kind review and perhaps share this episode. It's not because we have fragile egos. Well. But because we want other great people like you to benefit. Speaking of great people, we have a list of people we want to thank. We've got our senior technical advisor, Andy Robertson, our media partner and web designer, Sticky Media, and of course, our host and snack coordinator, Judy Langford. Oh, peanut butter cookies. You can continue the conversation on Instagram and Facebook at Obstacle Course Podcast and on Twitter at Obstacle Pod. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. Keep pushing through those obstacles.